Tegan Goes Vegan. I'm your host, Tegan Karuna. This week, I talked with Dr. Ananda Grone. She is a board-certified family physician and also runs a vegan nutrition practice where she helps people who are either trying to prevent or reverse diet-related health problems with a whole foods, plant-based diet. We talk a lot about nutrition and we talk a lot about the power of food and food choices to influence health. We don't talk a ton about the ethical reasons for being vegan, but we do talk about you know, the personal and the environmental impact that eating animal products can have on your body and how a vegan diet is a healthier choice for lots and lots of people. I'm not going to come out and say that it is the only healthy diet for an individual, but I will say that I do think it is the healthiest diet for our planet. I think we we know how much of an impact animal agriculture has on climate change and <laughs> the availability of clean water for people to drink, things like that. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a nutritionist, nor am I a doctor, so I can't speak to whether or not a vegan diet is 100% the healthiest diet for every single person on this planet, but Dr. Negron has done a lot more research and knows a lot more about it than I do, so I'm just going to let her speak for herself. So without further ado, here she is, Anna Negron. So what does that mean that cooking with patients is integral to your practice? It means that I get together with my patients once a month, and we cook together. Everybody has chopping boards and knives. We celebrate different ingredients, the coming together of ingredients, the simple, inexpensive, easy-to-prepare recipes that the whole family can get involved in. And and then we sample it and uh, hopefully encourage people to make it again at home. Mm -hmm. And so how does... So my background is in public health, and now I work in health policy. So this is a very, like, policy, like a insurancey wonky question but how how does that get paid for do you do you take insurance huh no i don't take insurance we are really behind in terms of being able to fund preventive care or actually health care what we really know as health care is sick care <laughs> so what i do is i bring my own ingredients and people leave a donation whatever they can so that i can buy ingredients for the next time that's really interesting and, and an excellent point that the way that the American healthcare system is set up is not for prevention. And we're slowly starting to put pieces in place to help with prevention. But the Affordable Care Act was just one little bit of what we really need to be doing. Um, so it's really interesting to me that you've been able to build a practice that really focuses on prevention. Yeah, the healthcare system is very fragmented. I've been practicing for over 40 years. I didn't come into cooking with my patients until 2003. So it, there's some history, but it's not all my, the, the whole of my career. What I found out was that if I wanted people to eat healthier, and I mentioned kale or steel-cut oats or quinoa or how to make Brussels sprouts, it would really be a waste of energy if they didn't know where to get them, how to cook them, and whether their family would accept it or not. So to me, it became 
exceedingly important to have the sensory experience where people would actually touch it, smell it, taste it, put it together, and then take it, an ambassador sample home for the family members that would not make it to the cookings. <laughs> and for the ones who are maybe a little uh, less inclined to try new foods. Reluctant. Reluctant, yes. yes. <laughs> so you grew up in Puerto Rico? Yes, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And where, where on in the island? Atorrey, which is a mile from San Juan. Okay. So kind of close to the city. Yes. And then you went to med school there? I went to medical school in Puerto Rico. And then did you practice in Puerto Rico? No, I came to the United States for my family practice residency, which at the time was a kind of new residency and very few. So I finished my family practice residency here in Philadelphia at Hahnemann. Okay. So why, why did you decide to do family practice if that was kind of a new specialty? You know, it was very hard for me to really specialize in ears or noses or skin or hearts. I always saw the whole person, and I could not really choose. So a family physician seemed to me like the most encompassing of all uh, specialties. Do you also see children? Yes, I would see children, except that the clinic where I see people today is a clinic for people without health insurance, and most children born in this country have health insurance. So I see very few. In my practice, where it's really the adults that are in charge of the children's nutrition, um, I focus the education on the parents. Mm -hmm. Right, because they're the ones who are doing most of the cooking and the food decision-making in a household. So hopefully it trickles down to the kids. Yeah, not only trickles down, but they really are the ones that have to be inviting the children to the kitchen to have an experience with food. I live for the day when the schools have a food laboratory where they're not really forced to eat something new in the cafeteria before they were first in- introduced to the, to the food, but rather play with the foods. Mm-hmm. Um, learn where they come from, the nutritional value, the taste, you know, how hard they are to cut. Um, Yeah, the difference between a carrot and a tomato when it's raw is very different. And you might not realize that if you don't have that experience. And cardboard cutouts really don't cut it. No, no, no. So um, did you grow up cooking? I grew up watching cooking and cooking, yes. You know, small things. I had one of those little, I don't know the children have them anymore, those little ovens, you know, that cook with a light bulb. Oh, the Easy Bake Ovens. Oh, (laughs) I wanted one so bad as a kid. I did, I did. And, you know, the rice would just stay hard, but I would have fun watching, you know, watching it. Mostly, yes, I lived watching uh, people cook in the kitchen, my mom and I did not grow up vegan. I grew up in a household where we ate everything. Um, So what I learned was really the skill of using a knife, how to really combine ingredients, season ingredients, how long does it take to cook, especially one of my mom's skills was starting three or four things at the same time and letting them all finish at at the right time. Yeah. So juggling uh, t- 
time lines for cooking. So that was an incredibly great, you know, background for me. Mm -hmm. And do you remember what the first food that you made yourself start to finish was? Yeah, rice. Yeah. Rice and beans. (laughs) The classic and important staple food for (laughs) everybody, especially vegans. Garlic, onion, water, salt, and either rice or beans. Yeah. And lots of other ingredients, you know, that would give flavor to anything. We don't realize that flavor comes from plants. Yeah, I I was recently talking about how when when people talk about craving meat or craving dairy, it's more about craving flavor and texture and either the fat or the protein. It's less about the actual meat itself and more about the different pieces of it and that you can get similar flavors from plant foods that will then be just as satisfying as the meat and dairy that we grew up eating. Yes, that's absolutely true today. It wasn't the case in terms of modeling it, you know, or having it available at the stores, but it is true today. I mean, vegan or vegetarian does not mean healthy. It just means no animal products. And you could have a cake that's really just decadent, vegan. It doesn't mean that that's a health food. It just (laughs) means it doesn't have any animal products. And, you know, veganism is about a lifestyle where we really try not to participate in the oppression or suffering of other sentient beings. So it's a lifestyle. It doesn't mean that we are against having fun or or tasting good food or celebrating or any of the sort. So when did you become vegan? Well, when I was 40 years old, I I had it up to here, if you can see. Uh, it was with, all the way up to the top of her head. <laughs> with the what I had learned about environment, the pollution, the waste, uh, the violence against animals. I really, even though I was a physician, I had not really connected it to to health at the time. But I read Diet for a New America by John Robbins, and it just cracked open my heart. And I announced to my family... I'm cooking no more animals. And it was just fine, a transition. For a couple of years, we still had dairy because we, in fact, this is one of the things that most of the people who turn vegetarian experience is that they eat more cheese and eggs than ever before because they have not really learned how to, what to do with vegetables. So the first couple of years, it was really a transition period. Yeah, and you, you go through that, let's melt cheese on everything Right. (laughs) Time in your life, yeah. Um, And there were really no models. I only had two friends that were vegetarians, and they lived in Oregon. (laughs) And we were in Philadelphia. Right. (laughs) So that's how it was. And then it was really a learning about how to make the recipes that we loved and that, that I grew up with without animal products. So it's been now 27, 27 years. Wow. Do you have children? Yes, I have a 35-year-old who is a plant-based composer, musician. I was going to ask, how how was the transition for your child? When he was eight years old, which is when I announced the the change, (laughs) (laughs) 
um, he heard me, and then he said, "So exactly, why are we doing this?" <laughs> Excellent question. Good. But I had really molded over in my head so much, you know, in terms of the environment, the violence, the waste, um, and I just said it in two sentences like that to him, and he said, "That's good enough for me." Wow. I still remember that. Wow. He hasn't turned back. That's so insightful. He was eight, mm-hmm. and he was just like. All right, mom, that makes sense. I'm on board. That's amazing. Well, remember that we really are probably modeling a lot at home without saying anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so we were recycling. We had a compost pile in the backyard. We um, led some initiatives in the school in terms of, you know, less less use of plastics, less use of packaging. Um, We had a dog, you know, and so love for animals was always a part of us. And it was not, it was just had not transitioned to other animals, but we were, (laughs) we were a kind, kind to the world family. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, the foundation upon he could say, that's good enough for me. So you'd already kind of set this compassionate lifestyle up for him. And so when you brought him this new idea, he was just already ready for it. I was not doing it on purpose. And I was not even expecting him or my then husband to, to, to do it with me. Uh, I just said, I'm in charge of the kitchen, guys. <laughs> and I'm not cooking any more animals. Um, but outside the home and, you know, at school and all that, I mean, everybody had freedom. So it was really a revelation for me that he would just be on board so quickly. And so you started off as vegetarian? Yes. And then eventually? Vegan. Vegan. And how did that transition happen? I mean, it was just the awareness that, you know, cheese and eggs do not a healthy variety make. And so... (laughs) Um, you know, learning more about the different um, other ingredients, you know, tofu, soy milks, um, baking, which I really did a lot when when our son was younger. Uh, using, it became like a challenge to really bake some things without eggs, milk, or. And now you're rolling your eyes because it's not difficult at it's all for you. It's not at all. <laughs> I just made a cranberry orange cake that's just delicious. And it, I, I made some, uh, some muffins recently from uh, the Vegan Pantry cookbook. Are you familiar with that one, Miyoko Shino? So she basically made a cookbook of here's how to make homemade versions of all the processed foods that you love, which seems like something you might be interested in. So this was, you make basically a a chocolate baking mix, and then you can make cake and cookies and muffins and all that stuff from this one mix. And so I brought them to work, and one of my coworkers was like, how did you make this so, how did you make it so moist? And I was like, well, you don't need eggs and butter to make things taste good. You don't. There's lots of other ways to do it. And I think vegan baking is is one of the big challenges for people. But ultimately, once you start to get a hang, the hang of it, you can really do a good job with it. See, I leave that part of the vegan 
experience to you and others others like you who would really passionately and you know very adroitly um, show it to people. As a physician, I really also am very very interested in the state of our health and um, and really the environment, which is intimately related or linked to our diet. So my focus when I, when we get together to cook with my patients, we don't use any processed foods. We don't use flour. We don't use sugar. We don't use oil or hardly any oil. And we don't make baking with the focus. What we make is um, stews and soups and stir fries and Latin dishes that could be made just as delicious with all the plant ingredients like burritos or uh, tamales or pasteles from my country. So we really focus on unprocessed foods and we process them ourselves. Right, and that that makes sense because that is, you are working with people who are trying to improve their health and showing them that there are healthy foods that they can eat that also taste good. You're not you're not kind of out there just saying go vegan for for vegan purposes. It is definitely for an individual's health as well as all of the environmental and animal stuff. Like all of that's important, but really you're it sounds like you're helping patients who need to make changes to their diet. Yeah, I am a, you know, above all, I am a a board-certified family physician who is seeing too many people with uh, obesity, with hypertension, with diabetes, with gastroesophageal reflux, which people call acid reflux, with migraines, with constipation. Half the world lives constipated with arthritis, with inflammatory bowel disease, with acne, with diverticulosis. I'm mentioning you conditions that are really, really common in the developed world which are not in the plant-eating world. So to me, it's really important to focus on diet as a way to stay healthy, arrest and reverse many chronic illnesses. And like I say, I will enjoy decadent food, you know, some uh, coconut-based ice cream or some vegan cake or muffins, but that's a party food. And I do not really want people to think that we can eat on party foods or we can survive on party foods and be healthy. That's not, that's not true. <laughs> so in the, what is the, the population that you work with primarily? I work with various populations. I have been volunteering at clinics for people who have no health insurance. And there I see people who are working but have limited resources in terms of being able to buy health insurance. And, uh, and who aren't provided it through their employer. They're not provided through their employer, and also many people who are on, undocumented migrants. And so that's and one... They, just just to be clear, if you are an undocumented worker in the United States, you are not eligible for Medicaid or any other kind of public insurance or to be able to buy insurance Zero. on the marketplace. Correct. It's an incredible injustice, and it gets my blood boiling. Yes. So the clinics, you know, and the one clinic where I am volunteering, the only question is, do you have health insurance? If you don't, you're welcome. And And that's so nice because that's generally not the answer. The answer is almost always, if you say no, you can't go. 
or place. you have to prove you know that you're working or prove something there might be people who you know will take advantage of it but for the most part that's not our job our job is to provide health care and to make people feel welcome and can accepted you, can you really I don't believe that you can say that anybody is taking advantage of healthcare, either affordable or free healthcare. I don't think that that's something that that the even the idea that somebody shouldn't be getting free or reduced cost healthcare that just that concept alone is abhorrent to me. You should be able to get healthcare no matter what under any circumstance. Yeah, I will not wear the hat of being the police. For that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one population, and there I, um, from that group of people, um, come most of those who participate in the cooking workshops once a month. Then I have a private practice where people come on their own, um, and I do not accept insurance, but it's really a modest fee for the consultation. I do not replace the family physician. What I do is I help them reach their goals, whether it's lower their blood pressure, eliminate their insulin needs for diabetes, eliminate their migraines, help them with whatever, you know, arthritis pains, and by the way, lose weight. Those people, um, I do not prescribe anything other than food, and I do not test them for anything. They will bring their own laboratory test, and we can look at them. And it's usually one, two, or three visits, and they're on their own, and then they come back for a refresher course. And those are then people who I don't, I don't know if they do have insurance or not, because that's not a requirement. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It sounds like you're working with two different groups of people, people who are, are looking for some of the, the more holistic wellness kind of research they've identified that there's a problem and have identified that they don't want to use medication to solve it that they that that there's that there might be another way and then another group of people who have very few healthcare options available to them and who are I'm sure suffering from a lot of the same illnesses but have even fewer resources to deal with them that must be interesting for you to kind of like switch back and forth between the two populations. Yes, and at the same time, I find that many of the lower-income folks that I see at the clinic have more of an understanding of whole foods, whole foods meaning integral foods, than people who are purchasing more processed foods on high-end or you know high-scale supermarkets. So I don't. I, it's very curious. I'm learning along the way. What are the needs and the sufferings of everyone? Yeah, everybody has different issues that they're facing, and being able to help people from wherever they're coming from find a way to be healthy through their diet seems like not only a very rewarding job for you, but also one that's continually challenging. It's interesting that many people still have the mindset that what they need is something added to their diet to get healthier. And it's very 
unsophisticated to say you, what you need to do is eliminate things from your diet um, to get healthier. Um, I think when I hear people say what you need is more fruits and vegetables, many people eat more fruits and vegetables and in fact gain weight because they're adding fruits and vegetables <laughs> to their already <laughs> um, you know, basic diet. So this concept of really eliminating things is really, really hard to get through to people. Um, lots of folks, as you, as you well know, I'm sure, have taken to supplements and this parallel pharmaceutical line of remedies as the way to challenge the health system. And it really is not a challenge. It's really just the same but in a different guise. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is really become food literate and learn what to do with food and eat it every day, not once a week, and think that that's enough. Now, to be clear, there are certain things that people do sometimes or nearly always have to supplement. So like when you are either planning to get pregnant or are pregnant, you should supplement folic acid. Absolutely, folic acid. And we should all be using vitamin B12. But do you know where folic acid comes from? Foliage. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that folic acid is considered, as far as I know, considered one, or folic acid supplementation for women of childbearing age is considered one of the greatest public health interventions Absolutely. that we have found. Yes. So I always hesitate to, there, there, there's a time and a place for supplements, but taking crazy amount of CoQ10 or whatever, you know, taking all of these random things that aren't regulated by the FDA that are, you know, have little to no evidence behind them because you think it will make you healthier is not the way to undo the results of eating fast food every day. Yes. In a <laughs> nutshell. <laughs> so um, let's talk about your book a little bit. You have a book, Nourishing the Body and Recovering Health, The Positive Science of Food, which I imagine goes into a lot of this kind of stuff. So would you give me the kind of the elevator pitch for the book? The book is an antidote to our pharmaceutical-driven and dependent lifestyle. So it really, in the beginning of the book, it's a sort of a handbook of how to transition to a plant diet and give it your all for six weeks. So it's not like you have to do this forever, but really give yourself the opportunity to experience in your own body what happens when you eliminate processed foods, animal foods, meaning beef, chicken, fish, eggs, milk, cheese, yogurt, and flour and sugar processed um, foods or factory foods, and really eat you know rice, beans, oats, quinoa, squash, Brussels sprouts, tomatoes, that first part of the book, that's what it does. It's, it gives you the blueprint to try it for six weeks. And the encouragement is to do it 100%, not halfway, so that you have really a true experience upon which you can base then your decision to go with it for, uh, for longer or not. So that's, 
I'm very happy that that's the beginning of the book because that will get people engaged. But the book also talks about my experience, my uh, children and the family and how to really engage them. So food-savvy children and how to negotiate relationships when people say, what are we going to do with you now that you are different? Can we still go out to eat? Or um, It's also historically interesting in the sense that the USDA dietary guidelines, which have been published every five years, are published, and you can look them up in the, in the news, but I've synthesized the whole picture for you. And so it's interesting to know that it started, you know, with McGovern, the Senate committee that looked into malnutrition in this country. And we are now on the other end of the spectrum where malnutrition is not from lack of calories, but really from excess of calories. So, And from lack of nutrition in the excess calories. Exactly. From, calorie, from calories coming from just a very, very poor source. It also gives us a slice into the industrialized way in which we promote poor nutrition in schools, in senior centers, meals on wheels. So I have lots of menus taken from their websites, taken from their own uh, sites, and you can see that they're the same and how shameful it is that we are trying to uh, feed the masses of people who are captive audience with the least expensive, least nutritious, and most disease-promoting ingredients. I also discuss 20-some diseases that are, as I mentioned earlier, very common in developed countries but are really not in other countries, and you know their prevalence and the nutritional component. So you can take a look and see how you could amend them on your own with lots of references, which when I discuss the manuscript with other people, they said, oh, people don't like to read references. Well, I hope Wrong. not. Wrong. <laughs> I hope that, you know, the book is not really to stand there and say, do it because I say so, but really do it because you become educated and you become curious and you become a scientist yourself. And then I have a lot of patient stories that are not necessarily success stories in a straight shot or a straight line, but there really are real stories of people struggling with and coming to grips with success and slipbacks and reattempts to engage again. And I think they are really a wonderful way to, for readers to see reflected on them and to gather energy and encouragement. I think that there's certainly a, it, it could seem very overwhelming to say, all right, I'm going to focus now entirely on whole foods, entirely on unprocessed foods. And having that, just the idea of it being, especially if you're a meat eater or even a vegetarian, to then remove all of that, even though we're talking about not really removing, we are kind of talking about removing. And then that seems like a very scary transition or a very difficult transition to make. Do you find that, have you gotten 
any feedback from readers that the patient stories have kind of helped ease some of the anxiety that's around making a big change like that? Good point. Not so much from the patient stories, but from the fact that I really break down that experience of six weeks into think about it first. Go into your kitchen. Do it. I, Actually, one of the exercises that I do with my patients is called a virtual kitchen tour, which means that they take me into the kitchen virtually and they tell me what food is in the house today. So to me, it gives me an idea of what their food bank is. That's their default. So the first part of preparing for those six weeks is taking a look at your kitchen, making an inventory, putting red dots on everything that's processed and animal-based, and then look, stepping back and looking at how red your kitchen looks. Then deciding that you'll give it three days. But before you start, choose three recipes that you will make. In other words, it really is like planning for a big party where you really have the goal, but then you start to, on the calendar, you know, say, what am I going to do X day, that day? What is the first step? What are the last steps that I'm going to make? So it really is a very timeline exercise. And so the person can have a three-day, and then it's a a week pilot project. Um, So you can do this any which way you want. When you decide that you're going to do it for six weeks, you've really had a lot of practice, trial and error, slip backs, iron out the wrinkles, clean out your, your kitchen, maybe have a few recipes, maybe invite some friends and cook some recipes together. So it's not a jump into it. This is not a diet. This is a transition into a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, it does, it does sound like a very slow... Like there is the option for that kind of easing into making a change. Because if you are completely overhauling your diet, that our diet is so, it is so difficult to change. And we see that in, you know, in, in diet culture, in the idea of constantly going on different diets to try to lose weight and how much... and. There is research that shows that people gain all the weight back plus some. There's a lot of that, and, and some of that psychology and physiology in there is because there's not a slow transition, and it's not an actual lifestyle change. Many diets help people in the short run to achieve a goal of maybe losing weight for a wedding or for a special occasion, or but really they do not educate or transition someone to become more grounded in a new lifestyle, in a new way, so people slip back. And billions of dollars are wasted in this country going on and off the same diet or different diets. People, you know, like butterflies, go from one diet to the next. And it's really um, unfortunate. It, it, it is incredibly wasteful, and it's also psychologically damaging for a lot of people to feel like they've failed so many times. And really what's failing them is the idea that you can just, you know, count some points or cut out a couple things and everything will be better. And and that kind of mentality about how we think about our diet and, and dieting is 
it has a lot more repercussions, I think, than than just gaining the weight back. I think you're right. So um, you also have a website called Greens on a Budget. Yes, I do. And tell me about that, because that seems like it might have a little bit more of a financial focus, too. Well, the, the website, I started it because I really, this has been an incremental, you know, uh, journey. The website started because I had so many recipes and so many uh, tables. For example, people asked, what about protein? So I made a, a, you know, I made a table about protein. And in the process, I was also educating myself because I went through many, many, many ACMEs with credible, you know, physician organizations to get really savvy about nutrition and health and the like. So a table on protein and where you find that everything has protein, including a carrot, um, a, a table on calcium. So these were, you know, what, where do you get your calcium? Well, where does the cow get her calcium? The elephant, you know? So finding out that a Napa cabbage, in five cups of Napa cabbage, you can have 700 milligrams of calcium. That's, almost, that's more than half of what you need in a day. So these tables started to accumulate, and I was giving them out to people, but it was like too much of a piecemeal effort. And I decided to put them all in their website, together with some recipes and together with some essays, um, where it, anyone could go, and it's bilingual, so it's in Spanish and in English. Anyone could go. They had to spend no money. There's no selling of anything. And you know, my son helped me set it up, and then I transitioned it to one that I could upkeep myself. Um, so it's greensonabudget.org. And it's great because it does have a lot of recipes in it. I was looking at the grains, and one of the things that I noticed, I, I was actually looking at a bunch of them, um, and one of the things I noticed was that, one, there's a lot of uh, fruit involved. There's a lot of like, oh, throw a chopped up apple in there and see if you like it, and throw a handful of raisins in there, see what that does for you. And then they're also all written kind of like, just this is a guide this is an experiment do kind of play around with it i'm so happy you mentioned that because i did not get out to write a cookbook this is what i've written are templates or blueprints how do you make a salad a rainbow salad when i first started cooking with patients in 2003 we made rainbow salads for two years and nobody tired of them because every time we use different green ingredients, different red ingredients, different orange ingredients, and every, th- every time the flavors just mingled and created something new. So the template idea, to me, also frees someone from the anxiety of having to do something just so, because that's how the recipe goes. It, it encourages people to ex- experiment and to tr- trust their own taste yeah, it's it seems to me like if if somebody is making a lifestyle change that they need at some point, it's kind of the teach a man to fish situation where you can give somebody a recipe and they can follow it, but how many times can they really eat that exact recipe over and over and over before they get tired of it and want to eat something that they, you know, that, that's not helpful for them. But if you teach them a template or a process or a technique, then they can apply that to other things. 
one of the most thrilling comments I can get at the end of a cooking workshop is people who say, can I do this with that? Can I add this to that? And I just smile and say, it's yours. (laughs) It's your dinner. Make it how you want it. That's really cool. Yeah. And do you find, so you do work with, um, with migrant, with immigrant workers. Um, do you find that there are cultural barriers to something like a rainbow salad versus really nobody eats salads as far as I can tell. <laughs> like no one in any country eats a lot of salad in my mind. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I guess what I'm asking is how have you created recipes that are acceptable to people with all different culinary backgrounds? Um, I think we do eat, I mean, when I grew up eating salads, but they were perhaps not the most imaginative salads. Perhaps that is more to the point that we have salad bars that have the same iceberg remain than chickpeas and some green peas and mushrooms. Uh, Right, exactly. So what I have tried to do is really include all ingredients that people are familiar with. So using tomatillos, for example, using cactus pads or nopales, using not just garbanzo beans, but black-eyed peas or red kidney beans, using nuts, using grains to add to the salad, which really adds like a bite to it. They're not just now grassy foods, but they're more substantial. So cooking quinoa or cooking barley or cooking wheat, wheat berries. Wheat berries are incredible, they're delicious. They're so good in a salad because they're so chewy. Oh, I love wheat berries so much. <laughs> they pop in your mouth, you know, and what a different way to eat wheat than bread or pretzels or muffins or cakes. I mean, to eat the actual grain, much more um, nutritious, and you eat less of it <laughs> than when you eat, you know, um, a bun. So what I've done is I've really included ingredients that people are familiar with and make it into a salad and rainbow because it's colorful. So if it's jalapeno peppers or if it's sweet peppers or if it's quinoa or corn, depending, and, and really to move us in the direction of the world is really not a three-layer cake anymore. You know, we are all in a big global planet uh, experience. So we are not really any more alien, you know, with ingredients that are used in other parts of the, of the world. We can bring them to us. We use moth beans, for example, which I find in some Indian stores. Uh, mung beans from the Chinese store. I use... Uh, snow mushrooms, which are just a beautiful pompon that when you soften it or rehydrate it in warm water, it it feels and tastes like noodles. What? Wait, wait what is that called? It's a it's it's a snow mushroom. Snow I mushroom. don't remember offhand the the name of it, the scientific name of it, but if you go to a Chinese produce market, they sell them dry, and it's an incredibly 
beautiful and delicious ingredient. So, you know, it looks like a noodle when it's wet. So people can relate to that. Mm-hmm. And very few people, very few adults actually say no to trying something new. In fact, one of my sad experiences is that many adolescents, you know, who have been who have grown up on fast food, nuggets and pizzas and and sodas, uh, will participate in the cooking workshop only visually, and they will not want to taste anything. Um, and that is really something that we adults should be very concerned about, because we are in charge. We hold the purse. And if in school they're not being given the experience of these foods, at least at home we should be giving them the experience. And if not, not forcing them to eat it, but expecting them to learn about foods. And when you're touching, cooking, chopping, very often you have no choice but to taste it on your own accord. So, you know, it's to have the sensory experience. Yeah, that's, that is really interesting that there is an element of control that parents have with what their children eat, but ultimately kids are their own people and they have to put the food in their mouths themselves. So one of the ways to encourage them to do that is to engage them in the cooking process. I tell parents, you know, just just like you ask them to take out the garbage or to clean up the the table, um, they should also be part of the fun part, of the preparing part, without the expectation that they will eat it. But as a civic family activity. As my mom used to say, you're part of this family and you don't have any choice. <laughs> you have to do this. <laughs> Whatever it was that I didn't want to do. <laughs> And it's a life skill. You know, at the time, the child will rebel and will be stomping. And, but in 10 years, when this child is out on his own or her own, budgeting will be something that he, she has learned about because I find that a very important piece of the experience of cooking with patients. But also how to shop for ingredients, how to put them together, how what long they, they are, what they are, what nutritional value they have and how they can make them tasty. I want to, may I bring the budgeting part to it? Because um, I know that a lot of people say, well, yes, this is really fine and dandy, but it's very expensive to eat healthy. Well, again, coming back to the previous comment, if you add fruits and vegetables to your already diet, you're going to be adding expense. But if you exchange some things, that in itself will help you with the budget. So stop buying water in bottles, please. <laughs> Invest- As we sit at a table with bottled water. <laughs> Invest in a filter if you want, or a thermos, and fill it out of your own spigot. But also um, eliminate party foods from your regular shopping list and have party foods only if you're having a party. <laughs> $35 a week per adult person is how much you can expect to spend on fresh produce, including fruits. That's more. Th- that's a whole lot less than people spend on a regular coffee outing or regular Wawa or fast food, um, you know, lunch. 
So making people take a look at how much they're spending in view of that is really very important. There's a lot of misconceptions. So it's not more expensive. It's actually less expensive. And that is a major criticism of plant-based diets is that it is more expensive. But I actually hadn't thought, I always just thought about like, oh, well, if you're not buying meat, then it that will reduce your overall bill. But I never really thought, I never framed it for myself in the way of you are, I don't know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you did a very, you did a much better job of explaining why it's not more expensive than I ever have been able to. Well, I would add something else. If you're going to buy healthy foods that have been cut for you, like pineapple in a, in a cup, it's maybe $7, where a whole pineapple is three ninety nine. Come on, triple wash greens. Wash them yourself and pay yourself a buck. There's a lot of convenience, healthy food that does not need to be where you transition to. You can buy things whole and then chop them yourself. What's wrong with that? <laughs> so, you know, a, a, a bunch of kale hardly ever is more than 250. And it varies in the number of leaves because of the season. But, you know, use the whole bunch in one sitting. That's another way in which we waste money is by using a couple of leaves and then leaving the rest in the refrigerator to spoil. Use the whole thing, plan to put it in the soup or in the stir fry, in the beans, and then freeze some of it for later. Once a week, your refrigerator should be empty before you fill it up again with produce that you have a purpose for. So you have two or three recipes that you're going to make in advance and the others that you will make as the week progresses and you'll add from your already cooked beans or already cooked rice or your soup. Or So it's really, you need to plan it. You can't just wing it. But once you plan it and become routine, it's really easy as pie and inexpensive. We, we had a CSA this year, um, and one of the things that we were most disappointed about was that we didn't get more greens because we can eat a bunch of greens in a meal, no problem, and we would get one bunch of mustard greens for the week. And we were like, what are we supposed to do with this? This is one meal. This is the... now, now we have to still go out and get more. What's the point of the CSA? It was very interesting because what I've that? always heard was people talking about how it's so much produce, and we would just like run right through it. It was no problem for us to eat everything. And I thought that was that was really interesting and indicative to me of how few fresh vegetables many people eat. It's, yes. You're making, you're making a, yes. a very un- sad face. <laughs> yes. I mean, I have... I have looked at people's refrigerators that say, I've been here for too long, I need to be thrown out. You know, when the greens start to look yellow or spotty, you should never really waste your money like that. Or the earth's bounty. It's really respectful to use it. Yeah. So um, do you have recommendations for listeners? I know we mentioned Diet for a New America. This is really an older book, but the one that really could change your life um, in terms of looking at 
our source of food. Yes, Diet for New America by John Robbins. He was, he is one of the heirs to the Baskin-Robbins empire. However, he renounced to it and was the founder of Earth Save and other very, very active and incredibly important acti- you know, uh, initiatives uh, on plant diet. So I encourage you to pick it up. It will really um, touch your heart. And of course, there are others like Dr. T. Colin Campbell's China Study, some that people have heard more recently. And there are some physicians who have written, uh, for ex- Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, for example, has a, a, a very, very helpful website and also helpful tips on how to be vegan for 21 days with recipes and support. And it makes it really for the computer-savvy person, a hand-holding 21-day experience, which I really encourage you to participate. Food Politics by Marion Nessel. Um, Again, you know, it's in its second or third edition, but I think when we just satisfy ourselves with the bottom line, we don't really have enough foundation to base our life choices in. And these books that I'm quoting really help us base some life choices. Diet for a New America, China Study, Food Politics. That's great. Those are food politics in particular is one that I'm I'm familiar with. Um, Marion Nessel is kind of like, she's the best. She really is. <laughs> she's made accessible so much information that happens behind the scenes for us. Another person who I really does not get enough credit, and she's really not local, she's up in Trumansburg, is Antonia Dimas. She's the founder of Food is Elementary, a curriculum for elementary school children. It's in, I think, over 3,000 schools across the nation. You can go on her website and just really be ready to smile and see children having an experience in the schools, a food experience in a food laboratory in the schools. I, again, I live for the day when schools, especially around here, where they would have a greenhouse. Because, you know, the, gre- the growing season for, for vegetables is whilst children are on vacation. Mm-hmm. But if they had a greenhouse, they could really participate in something much more sensory, not just cooking, but really growing their own food. Definitely. So if somebody wants to either learn more about you or find your book, how can they, how can they find more information about you and your work? Well, they can go to the website, greensonabudget.org. I have a link for a Facebook page. I buckled, and I actually (laughs) have a Facebook page for the book. And I have been having so much fun putting pictures on every one of my gigs. I call them gigs because they are a lot of fun, uh, where people have invited me to present and share of my knowledge and also of the book. They can see my practice, my, you know, all the things that I'm involved in. So through the website, I think is the best way. Great. 
Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I really enjoyed, like, oh, right. Go ahead. Mention it. One of the things that you had asked me to bring was something, perhaps local resources, and I've seen what other people have offered, but I'm going to bring Gangster Vegan. These are, this is a, an outfit in Norristown that prepares organic, fresh food that's just delicious. They catered a reception in my office a few weeks ago, and it was just terrific. Vinny is the owner. On Monday nights from 5 to 7, every child that walks into their their place eats for free. Oh, that's lovely. So that's one more reason why I want to bring them to you. Yeah, you should go. And uh, if you're near Norristown, definitely bring, bring a kid or two or ten with you and and show them that there's some good vegan food out there. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. I had a lovely time talking with you. Tegan, it's been my pleasure. Tegan Goes Vegan is found at TeganGoesVegan.com. On Twitter, at TeganGoesVegan. On Pinterest, at TeganGoesVegan. The show is produced by Tegan and Nathan Karuna, with music by Amanda D'Amato. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a rating or a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show more easily. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back soon with more great vegan conversations.